Hi, thank you all for coming today. My name is Dr. Ryan Maves. I'm a professor of medicine and anesthesiology at the Wake Forest University School of Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and currently serving as the chair of the Disaster Response and Global Health Section here in CHEST. Uh, it's my pleasure today to introduce uh, my longtime friend and uh, at one point mentor, Dr. Edie Letterman. Dr. Letterman is an infectious disease physician, a prior Navy medical officer, uh, we had the pleasure of serving together in San Diego and also previously served as an epidemic intelligence service officer with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, where she worked in the pox virus branch. Uh, we're lucky to have her as an expert in viral diseases in general and pox viruses in particular today in the session where we'll discuss the current uh, monkeypox outbreak affecting many countries around the world, including the United States. Dr. Letterman, thank you so much for joining us today. Dr. May, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and for that lovely introduction. As we start today, um, I think for a lot of physicians practicing in the United States and a lot of other clinicians, uh, monkeypox is a new disease, right? Not a disease that a lot of people have a great deal of background in or a great deal of exposure in. Would you mind starting us off just by talking a little bit about what's the history of this disease? Where does it come from? What does it have to do with monkeys? A little bit about its prior epidemiology and so forth. Absolutely. Uh, well, it is a very interesting infection, and uh, I did have the opportunity to go to Republic of Congo and uh, do a bit of epidemiology on monkeypox. Um, it was first described and unfortunately given the misnomer of monkeypox in 1958 uh, with an outbreak among lab monkeys in Denmark. Uh, however, this virus is likely existed in sub-Saharan Africa, specifically Central and Western, for decades, if not longer, prior to this. And because it's an orthopox virus, just like smallpox, and since it confers uh, cross-reactivity, cross-protection between the two viruses, it was likely never detected while smallpox was uh, actively circulating. And so it, that's why it seems like a newer infection. It's also a zoonosis. And uh, as with many zoonoses, uh, contact with the host animal is episodic, periodic. And so outbreaks occur and then they recede. And so it comes in and out of the news, perhaps, uh, if at all. And the opportunity really to study this pathogen is, has been hampered by that. Uh, in addition, it occurs in parts of the world where there's quite a bit of political instability and it becomes a challenge to go into those areas and properly study the pathogen and look for the animal reservoir, which to date has not been uh, identified. We believe it to be a um, rodent reservoir, but we don't know for sure. And there are several rodent species which are uh, high on the list. But as you can imagine, it becomes very challenging to control an infection when you don't understand which of the animals is perpetuating it. And so that, that becomes a real challenge. So like many orthopox viruses, we'd like it to be called mousepox or murine pox and not monkeypox. But historically, it was given that name. And actually, currently, the WHO is trying to repeal that name and, uh, and replace it with, with something else that, that hasn't yet been determined. Something perhaps a little more descriptive of its actual epidemiology. Yes, and a little less uh, on the bias side and, and, and sort of pointing the finger at Africa. Uh, so we're, we're hoping that it's a, a nice, uh, uh, more generic name, more descriptive of either the host or presentation. Okay, okay. What can you say about kind of its prior epidemiology? Like where has it been endemic prior to the current outbreak? And what do we know about, you know, clinical presentation, caseloads, mortality rate, and so forth? 
Excellent questions, all of them. Um, so I think I would start by saying again, you know, since this is an infection of sub-Saharan Africa, uh, at least endemically, we see outbreaks periodically in Central Africa for the most part. Um, there's actually two clades, a Central African clade, which is more highly mortal. And that's probably why we really see those outbreaks and those exposures occur periodically, as opposed to the Western African strain, which tends to be much more mild and has thankfully um, been the strain that we are seeing in our current global outbreak. There was uh, another importation, which was very interesting and important, in 2003 in the United States related to the pocket pet industry, where folks uh, were um, bringing in all kinds of cute little fuzzy animals, nuzzling them nice and close. And uh, unfortunately they were carrying monkeypox virus. And so they, they got not just a little snuggle, but they also got monkeypox from their pets. Um, so I think those are really the, uh, the key um, uh, epidemiology, epidemiologic factors and, and risks uh, that is being in endemic areas, being exposed to this uh, animal, this reservoir, which again, we can't identify. We know there are multiple intermediate hosts, that is including humans who would be in, uh, basically amplifying the virus, becoming ill, becoming poxy, which is why the monkeys were identified and, uh, and then it was called monkeypox. But we know uh, from, from biology that, that they, they can't be the reservoir because they are sick and the reservoir by definition should be healthy or appearing healthy. So really, so exposure to the animals, exposure to sick people also. As many zoonoses, uh, the transmission from person to person is not as efficient as from the animal to the person. But we do know that in healthcare settings, there's been transmission. Within households, there's been transmission. Uh, but in general, it tends to sort of wane from generation to generation of transmission, not as efficient as coming in contact with that animal. Yeah, and that this, this existence of an animal reservoir, this is one of the things that sets it aside from, say, smallpox in addition to obviously being a milder infection on the whole. Absolutely. Smallpox lacked a, a non-human reservoir, if I recall correctly. Absolutely. And, and that was truly critical in our eradication of that pathogen. Excellent. Excellent. Now, how, in terms of clinical presentation, I don't think there's going to be many people practicing, if any, right now who can say anything meaningful about how to manage a case of smallpox. I suspect you might actually be the closest and certainly the closest of anyone I know. Well, I mean, I, I, would, I would defer probably <laughs> to our, our, our colleagues at CDC mm -hmm. uh, for yeah. probably being the closest in that, you know, they do have animal models um, within their BSL-4 um, right. laboratories. So okay. they are working with the virus uh, in monkey models, non-human primate models. Um, and uh, But monkeypox is certainly our closest extant um, relative, really, of smallpox. Yeah. And clinically, yeah. the uh, presentations are really indistinguishable with one major exception, and that is lymphadenopathy. So patients with monkeypox will have a diffuse lymphadenopathy presentation, I recall several uh, instances where we would receive photographs from the field uh, sent to our uh, our then head, uh, program head, uh, Captain Inger Damon, asking, you know, could this be smallpox? Because of course, you know, uh, um, we are um, ever vigilant um, as both the U.S. and Russia have that virus in in government laboratories. So. 
uh, from those photographs, often the prominent lymphadenopathy is what we're able to distinguish and, and able to say with fair confidence that this is not smallpox. Of course, that would be followed up with uh, further laboratory diagnostics, but it's a great uh, key to look for clinically. Well, that's very helpful. And thank you very much. How about um, in terms of mortality, what has been seen and what's been described in both the cases in Africa and then perhaps the current outbreak as well? Right. Well, luckily, as I mentioned, the current outbreak is being um, uh, is um, uh, involves the less mortal Western African clade, and there have been zero deaths related to the current outbreak. So that's fantastic. Yeah, um, and that absolutely, and that was the current case also for the importation um, through the pocket pets. That was also the um, Western African clade. The Central African clade, so, so to say, answer that question yeah. for Western African, the case fatality rate is less than 1%. Yeah. Uh, for the uh, Central African clade, that more mortal strain, you're looking at about 10% okay. maximally. So definitely more. more more clinically relevant. And of course, that assumes a normal host. So if you have somebody who has impaired immunity of their skin, say, for example, um, atopic dermatitis or has HIV, uh, or is a transplant patient uh, receiving chemo for their cancer, all of those patients' bets are off and uh, these infections could be uh, much more significant. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what would be sort of the mechanism of death in these people? Sort of a general, uh, shall we say, viral sepsis, a term that's gained a little more, uh, how should we say, cachet uh, since the uh, COVID-19 pandemic? Or is it more of a bacterial superinfection or a com combination of all of that? Yeah, I think that we would be looking at probably a combination, uh, but certainly bacterial superinfection is very important, especially you know if we think about patients who have progressive vaccinia, very large lesions, uh, lots of open tissue. It's very easy to get superinfection with Staph aureus and, and succumb to sepsis that way. Um, patients do have viremia. It, the uh, orthopox viruses uh, tend to be uh, dermato. Um, uh, dermatophilic. So they really want to proliferate in the skin. Um, it's not, uh, it's not like Rifali fever or other, uh, viruses where you may see necrosis of other organ systems purely by infection themselves. So you're like more likely to see just sort of progressive skin lesions that are then providing an excellent portal for other infections to get into. Yeah, and, I, and I suspect that a lot of us in, in critical care and pulmonary medicine haven't really thought before that much about atopic dermatitis and eczema as major risk factors for, uh, for a serious or a life-threatening infection. But certainly, you know, when, when you and I were in the military and uh, the military resumed smallpox vaccination after uh, the events of September 11th, 2001, this became a major issue in terms of how could we safely vaccinate large populations because, of course, the older smallpox vaccine uh, is a live virus and could lead to disseminated vaccinia in both people with those sorts of chronic inflammatory skin conditions and, unfortunately, in their household contacts as well. And I believe you were involved in a number of cases of those, or at least some cases of those. Right. Absolutely, Ryan. So, you know, Drivax, which was our, the previous vaccine that we used in DOD and has since been taken off the market and replaced, um, was a competent virus and, and did replicate in the skin. So um, having eczema, having a, you know, atopic dermatitis um, was a contraindication and including, as you mentioned, very rightly so, household contacts because 
you know, having a vaccine like the smallpox vaccine, uh, and not just Drivax, but our current version, which is AKM 2000, uh, which is replaced it and is safer, but it's still a competent vaccine, a competent virus that replicates. And so you have a major take in the skin, which is basically a vaccinia uh, vesicle and pustule develop. And this is unlike any other vaccine that we've, you know, we've been familiar with as providers. So um, it requires a lot of care and it requires time to heal up to three weeks, at least in a normal host can take even longer in people who have abnormal skin, abnormal hosts. And that's what we see in progressive vaccinia, for example. It is uh, atopic dermatitis has increased in uh, incidence in developed in developed countries uh, like the U.S. And so we see lots more people at risk for potentially having adverse events from vaccination. Uh, luckily, we do have another vaccine called Genios, which has the benefit of not being a competent replicating virus. Uh, and so you won't develop a take. Unfortunately, it's a two dose vaccine series uh, at zero and then at one month. And you can take up to six weeks to have uh, full immunity from that vaccine. So if you're looking for a rapid response, really your replicating virus is a better bet. And you're meaning for, for example, for post-exposure prophylaxis. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, if, if you have all the time in the world and you're dealing with pre-exposure prophylaxis, absolutely go with a safer vaccine. Um, and there's essentially no contraindications to Genios, with the exception of having uh, an allergic reaction to a component. Sure, sure. The um, Actually, that leads us a little bit towards, you know, we're talking about pre- and post-exposure prophylaxis, thinking about modes of transmission. So we talked earlier about how prior monkeypox monkeypox uh, outbreaks and epidemics in Central and West Africa have largely been due to contact with the animal reservoirs and to a somewhat lesser extent to contact with infected humans. How does this current outbreak differ? This current outbreak is very interesting in that we are seeing uh, what would appear to be intimate contact as the key exposure um, from the index case. So, uh, whereas you would think, uh, you know, perhaps in a healthcare setting, uh, caring for a patient's wounds on their skin uh, or fomites, that's another important uh, potential mode of transmission. The pox viruses are DNA viruses. They're quite hardy and they can exist in the environment, especially in uh, substances like linen, where it really protects them from uh, changes in uh, humidity and UV, and they can persist in the environment for weeks, as we discovered when we uh, investigated the home environment of a child with um, eczema vaccinatum. So uh, it is very hardy, which is, again, an unusual um, characteristic of viruses that we work with. Um, and then, of course, droplet spread is also a mode of transmission and theoretically uh, also droplet nuclei. Uh, so lots of different ways you can get it. In this current outbreak, however, it does seem like direct contact is probably what's happening. And one of the reasons is that clinically, these folks are presenting with genital and uh, perennial lesions, as opposed to more of a disseminated classical rash. Uh, and it's interesting because I was just looking at a paper from 2020. So this predates the current uh, outbreak. And this was in, um, I believe, Nigeria. And they were comparing HIV-infected individuals to non-infected. And one of the clinical characteristics that was different is that HIV-infected individuals had genital ulcers. Uh, 
Hmm. So I wonder if this mode of transmission has been occurring, but we just haven't really appreciated it. If you think about a patient coming into your office with a diffuse rash, how many times do you ask them to fully disrobe? I mean, you see the rash where it is and you you make a diagnosis. Uh, we don't do that with our varicella patients, for example, or measles. Or, so um, it's interesting. So maybe uh, this intimate contact, I, I like to call it cuddle pox, okay? Because it's not, we, we don't think of it as a true STI. Right. Um, but we we have seen this in other orthopox virus situations. So, for example, with vaccinia virus, that is Drivax vaccine, now ACAM 2000, when active duty members are vaccinated, um, they may have some cuddling or or frank intimate contact with either a you know their their spouse or girlfriend or boyfriend, and then transmit that infection from their smallpox vaccine site to that individual in all kinds of interesting places, um, yeah. in, including uh, the vagina. It's been isolated from. Uh, so I, I suspect that orthopox virus infection has been transmitted this way before, but this has been a real um, eye-opening experience as far as how it can really predominate this way. Yeah, absolutely. And it does really make you wonder about what kind of a, what sorts of conditions do we need to be considering this in the differential? I mean, we discussed varicella, obviously, or suspected varicella infections, uh, conditions that may present a little less often to pulmonologists or intensivists like, um, you know, for example, uh, genital herpes infections, syphilis, chancroid, other sorts of conditions. But but absolutely a diffuse uh, a diffuse vesicular rash all over the body, uh, with some degree of fever and and acute illness. Uh, it seems like varicella would be the top of that list. Absolutely. So you know you, you brought up a few excellent points there. One, and I'll just go backwards. But varicella is considered sort of the most um, inline clinical entity to exclude or to keep in the top of your differential when you're thinking about monkeypox and also smallpox. Um, and there's a few distinct clinical differences. Um, one being, uh, and this is a helpful thing, which is that the patient with smallpox or monkeypox is not infectious until the rash is present, or you know, some would say they have fever, but that that time that they're acutely ill, that's when they become infectious. Varicella, not so. You're looking at one to two days before. So by the time you see them, it's been out of the bag. Um, the other things uh, are about uh, are, that are different are, are the lesions themselves. Varicella lesions are very delicate. They have that red base, so that dew drop on a rose petal appearance. Um, they're in different stages. So some of them may be vesicular, some are pustular, some are scabbing already. Uh, whereas your orthopox virus infection should be marching all together in sync. There should not be a presentation in different stages. So those are the things that help. In addition to the orthopox virus infection uh, producing very deep uh, lesions, like very palpable, I think uh, of almost like octopus suction cups is sometimes you know what comes to mind when I see the lesions in photographs, but they'll be very palpable, uh, very distinctive. The other thing you mentioned is how important it is to keep STIs in mind when we're evaluating these patients, because again, common things are common and you're more likely to be seeing an STI, a classical STI in a patient than monkeypox. So it, CDC did a fantastic webinar of their COCA series, and they actually partnered between uh, pathogens of high consequence and their STI folks together to present uh, both on monkeypox and the new presentation, and then the whole STI differential. So I highly recommend folks to view that. It has been recorded and it's excellent.
Oh, it's a great recommendation. Thank you very much. So let's say hypothetically that I'm on call and I see a, uh, a young patient previously well uh, presenting with serious illness with a, a full body vesicular rash uh, that meets these, you know, they have lymphadenopathy. It's not the sort of delicate uh, vesicles one might see with varicella. I have a reasonable suspicion uh, that this could be monkeypox. And let's say that in addition to that, this person is not doing well. They may have some undiagnosed immunologic disorder that we haven't quite sorted out yet, perhaps acute leukemia, perhaps uh, some other immunodeficiency. Uh, and because I am fortunate enough to have you as a friend, I give you a call. What would be an approach I should take? Both, let's start with infection prevention. How should I manage this person who I am? I've decided I'm going to admit to the hospital. How should I handle, how should I approach this patient's care? Where should I put them in the hospital? Those sorts of things. What advice might you give me? Excellent question. And, and you know, it becomes challenging in the era of COVID because so many isolation beds uh, have been consumed. Um, but yeah. you definitely, you want to put them in respiratory isolation if available. If not, yeah. it is still acceptable to put them in a, in a sort of a droplet uh, precaution room. You yourself and your healthcare staff, you want to have gowns, gloves, eye protection, and an N95. The patient themselves, if you can, you know, if they're stable enough to be wearing a mask, that might also reduce some transmission to you. Certainly when they leave the room, they need to have a, a mask on to protect other patients. But hopefully you can get them in isolation first. That would be absolutely my first recommendation. And then the next thing would be to certainly contact your infection control staff so they know what's going on in the hospital. But at the same time, almost, right? If I could have two phones yeah. going on at the same time, I'd call the local health department. They need to know immediately uh, because they're going to be the ones to trigger the diagnostic specimens to be sent to the laboratory response network labs. And every state has at least one of these labs. They're absolutely outstanding in their response time. You'll get a uh, result, usually the same business day. And I've seen them actually hold the labs open to run these critical labs past normal hours. Um, and they will, they'll be able to tell you what specimen uh, uh, swabs you need, for example, containers. I think the one thing I would just say up front, you probably have the correct swabs in the hospital, but you do not want to use a cotton swab. Yeah. So don't use it. Don't use a cotton tip applicator. You're looking at uh, a synthetic material, a Dacron swab, polyester, um, and you want to send it dry. Do not put it in media. So those are the two really critical things. Uh, and then once, so what the, lab, rap, the laboratory response network labs have a generic primer. So they have an orthopox virus primer. And in the current setting, with what we currently know, which is that there's no naturally occurring orthopox viruses in North America. Uh, if you see a patient like that and their orthopox virus primer is positive at your LRN, it's monkeypox. Yeah. Um, but it will be sent to the CDC who, uh, and they will perform species-specific primers there, in addition to doing a whole other host of things <laughs> as well. Um, they have clinical consultation services from CDC. Uh, I'm sure your health department does as well that can help walk you through. Um, if, you know, for example, uh, you don't call me, <laughs> I'd be happy to, to give you my, my, my two cents. Uh, but, um, you know, if the patient doesn't look well, we thankfully have uh, quite a number of um, options. Uh, you know, CDC and the U.S. has invested significant resources into countermeasures for smallpox. And this is one situation where we're going to benefit from that because uh, unlike coronavirus, uh, we, you know, we have actually developed uh, therapeutics 
vaccines, and we have immune globulin also. So your patient who looks sick has options other than just you know, supportive care at this point. So that's absolutely critical information to relay to CDC. They can help release uh, um, therapeutics from the strategic national stockpile. There, of course, will be contact investigations uh, conducted to figure out who else, sort of if we think about smallpox eradication in the ring, vaccination and, you know, we, we think about who are the closest contacts because this doesn't, this, this is not thankfully one of the more communicable infections. So, um, you know, you're not looking at having to do mass vaccination of, you know, hotels and things like that from, or, you know, interventions, uh, where you're, where you're dealing with, uh, hundreds of people that you're going to have to, um, protect and intervene. So, um, we have a, a fairly good stance, a good uh, set of um, interventions at our fingertips, basically. So ring vaccination, then referring to vaccination of the immediate contacts and those at risk. Absolutely. And if I if I recall, some hospitals, and I believe at least New York and perhaps some other sites, have actually offered Genios to healthcare staff who've been involved in the care. Again, we said that it hasn't really been validated for post-exposure prophylaxis, but we are trying it on at least a limited scale. In the US. Yes, yes. And, and I, I also understand that we're currently in a holding pattern as far as uh, pre-exposure vaccination, because again, I think the stance is that we're not anticipating seeing any kind of widespread uh, pandemic, uh, that yeah. this is going to more likely be uh, small exposures and in individual cases. Um, however, you know, I, I think it's not unreasonable <clears throat> if you had a, um, a first responder group um, and you wanted to be prepared and you had access to the vaccine, that those would be things that you would do up front. Again, the Genios gives you the time to do that. And if you don't have the time, then you're looking probably more at ACAM 2000. Um, for someone like myself, someone like you, who's been vaccinated before, I think we have probably little risk of, of issues, <clears throat> excuse me, unless we've developed some uh, intercurrent problem, some, some medical condition in our, in our old age. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and I think the other point is that because the smallpox vaccine uh, has not been given to the general population since really the early 70s in the U.S., yeah. We're dealing with for pretty much an unprotected population. Uh, there yeah. may be some people who've kind of hung on to some immunity from those vaccines, but many have lost all, if not some, of their immunity. So we're dealing with a highly vulnerable population from that perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Now, back to our kind of theoretical patient. In terms of therapeutics, you mentioned some therapeutics that we now have available for an orthopox virus infection. What might a couple of those be just for general information? Right. And so there are some that are available as part of strategic national stockpile. Those would include tecoviramat, would include cytofavir, um, and then there's some that are not uh, that would include uh, brincytofavir. So we have those uh, therapeutic agents. And then I would also consider in that group, vaccinia immune globulin intravenous, uh, again, really only necessary for folks who aren't able to mount uh, a humoral response. So for example, our patient with progressive vaccinia, he required uh, many, many, many units of that in order to prevent the spread of infection and eventually to, uh, to, uh, to resolution. So we have uh, those, we have, again, some excellent uh, options. 
most of the work has been done in animal models. Of course, you know, these these drugs have been cleared through FDA, through the animal rule. So, you know, in the case where you don't have really good field studies set up, um, they will allow information um, from animal studies uh, to support approval um, for, for special drugs like this. And so tecoviramat is an oral agent, uh, fairly good oral availability, um, and it's dosed twice a day. Uh, as long as the child or adult is over 40 kilograms, it's 600 milligrams twice a day. And uh, cytofavir, uh, I don't want to necessarily go into in too great detail. Again, it's still is in the strategic national stockpile. It's a fairly toxic drug for anyone who knows who's worked with it, which brings me to Brin cytofavir, which is not currently in the strategic national stockpile, but does have data. We used it for our progressive XNA patient as well, in addition to tecoviramat, uh, in addition to um, imiquimod talk, uh, topically, in addition to intravenous uh, vaccine <laughs> immunoglobulin. It was a kitchen sink uh, approach because he was so sick. Um, so, uh, And that's dosed only weekly. It has a very long uh, half-life. So it's 200 milligrams a week, two doses, so week one and week two. So those are our options. Uh, and, and again, you know, we're really fortunate to be in this position to have as many as we do and to have yeah, uh, as many, you know, as, as much of a supply. Yeah, well, that, that is a, certainly a, a silver lining on an otherwise challenging outbreak. Well, do you have, well, now that we're kind of wrapping up here at the end, Dr. Letterman, do you have any other kind of last insights you'd like to share with our colleagues? Um, well, I'd just like to say that, uh, you know, I continue to be um, uh, blessed and and just feel privileged to be in the field of infectious disease where I think on a regular basis we are surprised by pathogens uh, and, and also to be privileged to have so many smart colleagues, uh, just like our, our uh, colleagues in, uh, in Boston who identified that very first case in the U.S., um, and although we certainly want people to think syndromically, we want pe- to people to think rash illness and think, could this be bioterrorism? In this case, could it be monkeypox? What else could it be? Varicella, syphilis, as you run down the list. Um, but to continue to be vigilant and continue to think outside the box, um, and especially when uh, a rash illness has such uh, unique characteristics as orthopox virus infections do. Absolutely. Well, thank you all so much. And thank you also to all of our colleagues for listening in today. Dr. Letterman, thank you so much for your time and expertise. It's been a real pleasure to to see you again, even if it's only over Zoom. And thank you again to uh, both the staff at CHEST and to all of our colleagues at CHEST for continuing to take care of patients. And uh, thank you again. Have a great day. Dr. Maves, it was a genuine pleasure. Thanks and good luck to all of our colleagues out there. Take care.